You can have a fight or you can have a conversation and you get to decide which one works better to fit your strategic goal. Because if your goal is to have a fight, there's a lot of ways to do that. But if your goal is to build the human rights movement, you have to change how you weaponize your trauma and your language in the movement. Loretta J. Ross has been active in the movement for reproductive justice since the 1970s. In fact, she and her colleagues actually coined the term in 1994, creating a new framework for activists that went far beyond the pro-choice and pro-life debate. She is one of the founders of Sister Song, a nonprofit that supports the reproductive human rights of people of color. Her prolific career is difficult to summarize, but I'll try. She was the director of the Women of Color program for the National Organization for Women, the program director of the Black Women's Health Imperative, the director of projects for the National Anti-Klan Network with a focus on neo-Nazi involvement in anti-abortion violence, and the co-author of Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organizing for Reproductive Justice, and Reproductive Justice, an Introduction, and is currently teaching courses at Smith College college and publicly on white supremacy and call-out culture. And all of this only scratches the surface. Today, Loretta will share her personal and political journey through the last six decades and what it's taught her about solidarity and about how we create a strong movement that is dedicated to moving together. Hi, Loretta. Thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today. This is such an honor. Thanks for having me on your show. As I mentioned to you, our series covered the 1600s all the way up to when Roe versus Wade was passed. And at that point, I just thought I'd really love to talk to someone whose work just kept popping up again and again in our research and uh, just get a little bit of your lived experience as someone who's been when did your activist career start? My activist career started in the 1970s because it took a while to knock my hard head into some sense. But <laughs> the story of why I became active started in 1968 because at that time I was 14 years old and a cousin who was supposed to be babysitting me thought it was a better idea to get me drunk so he could have sex with me. And he was 27 years old and married, so it was definitely a no-no. And I became pregnant in the summer of 68, at the time when abortion was not legal, so I had very few options. And my parents thought that it was a good idea to hide the pregnancy, so they stuck me in a home for unwed mothers, and I was supposed to give the baby up for adoption. And all that changed in April of 1969, when my son was born, I gave birth at a hospital, and I'm sure it was the Catholic hospital, though I'm, you know, I don't have any records. So what happened was that the nurses bought me my son the morning after he was born, instead of just whisking him away to the adoption agency. And when they put him in my arms, I noticed that he's got my face. And I kept saying, he's got my face. He's got my face. Oh, damn, he's got my face. And at that time, I went from a scared pregnant teenager to a scared teen mom because I couldn't go through with the adoption at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I returned to the 11th grade of high school as a teen mother. My school wanted to not readmit me because at the time, their policy in Texas was to expel girls who became pregnant or had evidence of pregnancy. Well, I certainly had evidence because I had a baby. And so my parents had to sue the San Antonio, or threatened to sue because we didn't actually go to court, the San Antonio Independent School System for my right to return to school. But even that didn't quite get my attention. I just knew they didn't expel the boys who got the girls pregnant. They just expelled the girls. So. That was my first feminist fight, even though I couldn't spell the word feminism at the time, the right to return to school and not get pushed out. 
I graduated, got a scholarship, had a scholarship to Ratcliffe, but they didn't want to give me a scholarship because I'd had a baby. And so they couldn't refuse to admit me because they had already done that, but they could say that they didn't have, no longer had any money for me, even though they had promised me a scholarship. So I ended up with another scholarship to Howard University. I went there at 16. My mother was so religious that she refused to sign the consent form for me to obtain birth control because I was only 16 years old and I needed her consent. And so even though I was going to school a thousand miles away, first year student, she didn't think that I should ever have sex again until I got properly married, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I didn't agree with that. Got a boyfriend my first year. He was first year law. I was first year majoring in chemistry and physics. And I became pregnant in my first year. Fortunately for me, Washington, D.C. legalized abortion in the summer of 1970. And I became pregnant in the fall of 1970. And so my boyfriend, as I said, who was in law school, was more than happy to pay for it. And there were no legal obstacles. I was able to go to the Washington Hospital Center and have a perfectly fine, go late, third trimester abortion because I spent so much time fighting with my mother over the consent form. My older sister, who was nine years older than me, forged my mother's signature. And that's how I had an abortion at the Washington Hospital Center. I decided that I didn't want to risk another unplanned pregnancy because I had been on birth control when I had this second pregnancy, again, with my sister's consent. <laughs> and so I accepted implantation of the Dalcon Shield, which we did not know at the time was a defective intrauterine device, IUD. And so three years later, the Dalcon Shield caused an acute pelvic inflammatory inflammation of my fallopian tubes, they exploded. I was taken to the hospital unconscious. And when I woke up, I'd had a full hysterectomy. Wow. So my entire reproductive career was very brief. And so that's what finally got my attention. I mean, you've lived through so many different parts of the fight you've been working on through your whole life. It hasn't just been kind of a theoretical fight for you. It was your actual life. Exactly. I'm 68 years old right now, soon to be 69, but I'll never forget that scared 14-year-old girl who didn't consent to having sex, who didn't consent to becoming a mother, but I really couldn't give my son up for adoption, and certainly didn't consent to that child being my only child. And so that's who I fight for. I fight for other young girls who can't say if and when they'll have sex and the conditions, can't say if and when they'll have babies and the conditions, who don't have both reproductive and sexual bodily autonomy. I think it's even harder for young women now than it was for me in the 60s and 70s with this wave of anti-abortion legislation and the Supreme Court reversal of Roe and all of that. It's even harder now than it was for me 50 years ago. That's got to be a little depressing. Yeah, it is. And I'm talking to a lot of young women who are still fertile, who are frankly scared, who are rushing to get IUDs, even rushing to get sterilized because they know that they don't want to be held hostage by these men in these state legislatures who don't really care about their lives or their bodies. They just care about their power over women. So you're at Howard University, I believe, at this point when your career working with other people, building community, becoming an activist. So what was that like for you in those very early days as you were kind of defining what you were going to be all about? Well, I tend to call myself the accidental feminist because it was not my plan. As I said, I majored in chemistry and physics. I was intending to retreat to some laboratory somewhere and study porphyrin molecules. I had no idea that I was going to become a social justice activist. But in 1973, 
I was living with my son in an apartment in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. And I returned home from work one day to find an eviction notice into my front door and the front door of everybody else in the building because they were converting the building to condominiums and breaking all of our leases. I had literally just signed a new lease three months ago. And so I went to the basement of the building, which was the laundry room, because that was the only place big enough for everybody who lived in the building to meet, and started taking notes of what we were talking about. And because I had the notes, next thing I knew, I was selected to be the tenant president, only because I had the notes. There was no election or anything. And I went to a meeting we had, we had, I was told about of the Citywide Housing Coalition. And Citywide had worked to pass D.C.'s first rent control bill in 1994. So it was a very active, vibrant coalition of people facing gentrification in Adams, Morgan, Mount Pleasant, and Capitol Hill at the time. So I joined Citywide Housing Coalition, and it was at Citywide, at a Citywide meeting, I met this woman named Nakenji Torre who was a former member of the Black Panther Party, and currently she was executive director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. So Nakenji persuaded me to come volunteer at the Rape Crisis Center, and I remember telling Nakenji, I don't want to work with those white women. What are you talking about? And she looked at me like I'd lost my mind. She says, sister, would I lead you wrong? And I said, no, because she was a member of the Black Panthers. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about activism at that level. And so after becoming a volunteer, I succeeded Nakenji as the third executive director of the Rape Crisis Center, which was the first one in the country. And is celebrating its 50th anniversary in November of 2022. But anyway, so in 1979, I became the director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And that's where my feminism found a home, because I suddenly had words to attach to, to my lived experiences. I wasn't alone. I learned about the alarming number of young Black girls in particular who were sexually abused before the age of 18. I learned about reproductive oppression, how people did not have the right to decide if they'd have a child or the conditions under which they'd give birth. I learned so much. Washington at the time was in a golden age of Black feminist activism. There was a Black feminist newspaper being published called Upfront. There was a, a multiracial feminist coalition called Aegis uh, or the D.C. Area Feminist Alliance, which renamed itself Aegis. Uh, off our backs. The newspaper was published out of Washington at the time. So I found my feminist home through my work at the Rape Crisis Center. But it took a lot of knocks against this hard head to get me into that consciousness. It wasn't automatic. So as you're becoming an activist, I know that you got together with a group of other women to create a different perspective on this pro-choice, pro-life, this this argument that we have that tends to ignore a lot of aspects of what you and your colleagues would eventually call reproductive justice. Would you mind talking a little bit about how you worked through that and arrived at that and, and what reproductive justice means to you? Well, in the chronology of my life, you'd have to fast forward about 20 years. In 1994, June of 1994, I was invited to attend this conference on pro-choice activism sponsored by the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance and the Ms. Foundation. And Ms. actually gave me a scholarship to attend it. At that conference, we'd heard a representative of the Clinton administration, that's Bill Clinton, and they were talking about their efforts to do health care reform. And this representative reported that they decided somewhere in the minds of the Democratic Leadership Council or National Committee or wherever, that if they omitted reproductive health care or at least downplayed it, 
in health care reform, they could lessen Republican opposition to it and increase the chances of the legislation passing. Well, not only was that a suspect strategy where you throw your friends under the bus in order to appease your opponents, the bill actually didn't make sense because then what was left was a very male-centric health care plan. Yes, women would benefit from it, but reproductive health care is the number one driver of women to the hospital, to the doctor. And so our first on becoming a woman moment after our periods is our feet up in those stirrups for our pelvic exams. And so a group of 12 Black women who happened to be at the conference met in one of our hotel rooms, and we started analyzing what was wrong with the presentation we'd heard that day. And one of the things we analyzed was that it didn't never make sense to separate abortion from all the other reproductive health care issues that affected women's lives. And in more particular, when you started with the pregnancy, you actually started at the wrong point. And that was the problem with both the pro-choice and the pro-life perspectives. They started with the pregnancy. But we said, it's all the things that are going on in the woman's life before she's pregnant that really matter, but that's going to be how she determines whether to keep a planned pregnancy and not turn it into an abortion or an unplanned pregnancy that may be turned into a wanted child. Because if she doesn't have housing, if she doesn't have health care, if she doesn't have job security, if it'll interfere with her education, if she gets beaten by her boyfriend or her husband, if she says she's pregnant, all of those things determine the outcome of an unplanned pregnancy. And neither the pro-choice or the pro-life movement used an intersectional analysis to look at pregnancy outcomes. And so we coined the concept of reproductive justice by splicing together the term reproductive rights with social justice, because it's all of those social justice issues or human rights issues that actually determine pregnancy outcomes. And then that was in June of 1994. In September of 1994, the United Nations hosted the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, Egypt. And I was fortunate enough to have attended that. And in Cairo, I noticed how the global women's health movement used the framework of human rights to make claim to the same things we were pursuing without a lot of success under the limited U.S. Constitution, because there is no real privacy right in the U.S. Constitution, though it was inferred until the Supreme Court just took it away, and there's no right to health care, all of those things. And so when I came back from Cairo, I started articulating reproductive justice as a human rights-based framework that had three main principles that we joined with the pro-choice movement in fighting for the right not to have children, which is the right to use birth control or abortion or abstinence, if you can hang on. I mean, some people say it works. But anyway, that's where our agenda overlaps with the pro-choice movement. But it also overlaps with the pro-life movement which is to fight for the right to have the children that we want to have and dictate the conditions under which we would have those children. And that would mean using a midwife or a doula or having your birth plan respected when you went to seek medical care, to refuse unnecessary medical interventions like C-sections and things like that. And then the third principle, again, we felt as Black women was neglected by both the pro-life and the pro-choice movement, was the right to raise our children once they were born in safe and healthy environments. And that enlarged the conversation to bring us into contact with fighting against gun violence or the school-to-prison pipeline or environmental contaminations where our children don't even have clean drinking water or can't afford lead in their bloodstreams, or the food deserts, or the housing scarcity, 
or the taxation policies that unfairly fund some schools and neglect others. Almost every field of human endeavor affects people's reproductive decisions. And so the right to have a child, a right not to have a child, and the right to raise our children became the core tenets of reproductive justice after Cairo. Then, about a decade later, the LGBTQ movement came about and started intersecting with the reproductive justice movement. I want to bring into mind Carmen Vasquez, who worked at the uh, New York Lesbian and Gay Center, and she worked with us on a document called Causes in Common that talked about how reproductive justice applied to the LGBT movement. And this was, I think, about 2004. And so she started talking about the right to bodily autonomy, gender identity, sexual preference. So she brought sexual rights as part of the human rights framework into more prominence. So now when people talk about reproductive justice, they talk about four principles, the right to have a child, not to have a child, to raise your children, and the right not to have children altogether and express one's gender identity, sexual preference, and sexual pleasure, which is one of my favorites. And so surprising to me, at least, maybe not to the other 11 women, is how quickly reproductive justice grew from the margins to the center of how we talk about reproductive politics. And we never set out to transform the pro-choice or pro-life movements. We've said this, wanted to articulate what Black women wanted. But we accidentally created a very universal theory, kind of like intersectionality, where a lot of people agree that every human being should have the human right to have the right to have children, not to have children, to parent their children, and to express their gender identity and sexual preferences. And so that's why accidentally, reproductive justice has become the prominent paradigm shift for how people talk about reproductive politics. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, back to the show. The holistic nature that you bring to the movement probably helped me the most understand how I wanted to approach these ideas and questions. And part of that is learning the connections between white supremacy, population, and reproductive justice. And it, everything I uncovered was just got increasingly stranger, more disturbing, and yet very um, 
relevant to this day, I would say, as we move into, uh, I guess, a subtler, what I think is a population project as well in this uh, new world that we're living in post Roe being overturned. So I'm wondering, did you see this coming? It's a loaded question, but as someone who's studied what reproduction has meant to the most powerful forces. Did you see abortion becoming the battleground that it is right now? Oh, yes, but I'm not alone in that. One of the people who had one of the largest impression on my thinking was a writer named Ricky Solinger. And Ricky is a white Jewish woman who always centered race in her analysis of reproductive politics. So I discovered Ricky in the 1980s as she was doing her writing. And from her writing, I really understood that if you didn't understand white supremacy, you didn't understand what was really going on when it came to how different racialized populations had different reproductive destinies and options. Because white women are always subjected to forced breeding to fulfill the settler colonial manifest destiny part of white supremacy. And post-slavery, Black women's breeding was seen as a problem. And so we, along with poor white women, became subjected to sterilization abuse and eugenical thinking and what we now call population control. And so if you don't understand population control and white supremacy and neoliberal capitalism, then you don't understand, nor should you use reproductive justice because it's a framework that offers a critique of those systems of oppression that we call reproductive oppression. And so it's not just a new label that you can put on your old politics if you don't make it intersectional. Now, I do want to say that as a reproductive justice activist, I don't critique the pro-choice, pro-life binary from that framework. I think if you're fighting for abortion rights, you want to use the phrase pro-choice. That's perfectly fine because, first of all, it's intelligible to a large part of the population that doesn't understand our woke language. And I think it works very well to indicate what your focus is. So a lot of people mistakenly think that we created reproductive justice as a way to avoid either saying the phrase pro-choice or abortion politics altogether. And that's simply not true. It is a human rights-based organizing framework, reproductive justice is, where reproductive rights or pro-choice is a framework for looking at keeping abortion and birth control safe, illegal, and accessible. And reproductive health is the framework for providing services to individual people who need reproductive health services. So reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice are part of an overall framework. They're not antagonistic towards each other. And that's something that I just so appreciate about you and the work you've done is this desire to cross these gaps that we have between each other to find solidarity in the work that we're doing, even though we're all very different and we're all coming from different stories and different life experiences and different hopes and dreams. But you seem to be pretty grounded in the idea that we can move forward together. And you have lived through a lot of decades of this work. And I imagine it's been very challenging in different ways to find that solidarity. So what has it been like? How did you get on your journey to finding what can be really hard for a lot of us right now, finding the ways to move forward together? Well, fortunately for me, in the 1990s, I worked with Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was an icon in the civil rights movement. Fortunately, he died a couple of years ago, the same day that John Lewis died. We lost two of our champions on the same day. But anyway, Reverend Vivian, along with Ann Braden and a number of other civil rights activists, has started the National Anti-Klan Network, renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. And in 1990, I joined them as their program director. And that was the work that brought me most immediately in contact with understanding 
the white supremacist movement, the former white supremacist movement, the Klan, the neo-Nazis, the militias, the anti-Semites, et cetera, et cetera. And Reverend Vivian used to always tell us that when you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. And I didn't really understand that message. And it was reinforced by Leonard Zeskin, who was our research director, who deprogrammed a lot of people who had left the white supremacist movement. He mainly saw them as human beings who had some messed up lives that he was very interested in understanding and analyzing and fighting. And so being drawn into that work, I found a very surprising capacity within myself to have conversations with people who only wish me harm. These ex-Nazis, these ex-Klansmen, these ex-militia mean people. And I began to understand what Reverend Vivian meant, that once you got to know people and see their pain and take their suffering seriously, then you couldn't dehumanize them anymore. You couldn't hate them anymore. And in fact, your level of compassion and empathy would grow as you try to help them reintegrate back into normal society, where most people aren't members of hate groups. Well, that was that work. But one thing I also analyzed as I understood the philosophy of white supremacy is that there's a difference between ideological whiteness or white supremacy as an ideology and whiteness as an identity. And a white identity is just that, an identity, like a black identity or a female identity. They're all social constructs, made up stuff. But what they produce is the racism, the sexism, the classism, et cetera, that does so much harm. And so once I understood that you could separate white supremacy as an ideology from whiteness as an identity, I understood that not all white people are white supremacists and not all white supremacists are white. Because anybody can be an ideological white supremacist. I mean, look at Clarence Thomas or Ben Carson or, you know, Ted Cruz. I mean, these are all ideological white supremacists. And so then my work while I was at the Center for Democratic Renewal was to talk about and teach about how do you develop and build a white identity that I call appropriate whiteness that claims the white identity with pride because you repopulate it by divorcing it from ideological whiteness or the ideology of white supremacy. And so I love this work because it goes beyond that white guilt, white paralysis work, that being ashamed of being white, into repurposing the white identity in the struggle against white supremacy. And I'm having a ball not only talking about it, but I teach about it in my class at Smith College, which is called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump. And these young white kids that enroll in my class, and it's always packed, they are so thankful that they are learning about how to claim their identities without shame, without guilt, without fear, and how they can actually join the legions of white folks, not a whole lot of them, but every generation has had white folks who have opposed white supremacy. But that knowledge is buried, just like all teaching around critical race theory is attacked right now by the Republicans. And so they're so overjoyed to find out that they can reclaim and repurpose their whiteness in the service of human rights. And I'm having a ball, and I hope they're having a ball. And in that process, that brings me to my next work, which is challenging the call-out culture because we spend entirely too much time criticizing other people's social justice practices without learning how to build the power to defeat white supremacy and the ravages of neoliberal capitalism and settler colonialism. I know these are in-group words, you know, that people call our woke language, but people have to know the conditions under which they labor, like Paulo Freire said, in order to change those conditions. And so 
I'm challenging call-out culture because I think that there's a risk of us spending too much time splintering as a human rights movement than working together. I actually think that we hold what in poker is called a winning hand because the people opposed to human rights think they're fighting us, the human rights movement, but they're not. They're actually fighting forces way beyond their control because they're fighting truth, they're fighting time, they're fighting evidence, and they're fighting history, which is why they don't want people to know history. They don't want people to know the truth. They think that if they can roll us back to the 19th century without opposition, and the reality is that any one of those forces could kick their butt. And so we just have to be clear as a human rights movement that we don't snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Because if we don't stop this call-out culture amongst ourselves, then we will fail to take advantage of the fact that truth, time, evidence, and history is on our side. All we have to do is not self-destruct on the way to victory. I have goosebumps currently, I'd just like to point out, because uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading your work about your criticisms or critiques of call-out culture is the term problematic ally, and then you set that against enemy. So would you want to talk about that? Yes, I think that most people mistakenly think that if people are not perfectly aligned ideologically, that your job is to challenge them and try to increase that alignment until you get 100% agreement. But I challenge that whole perception, and I think it's an underdeveloped and rather naive analysis. Because when many different people think many different thoughts, but they move in the same direction, that's a movement. Mm. But when many different people think the same thought and they move in the same direction, that's a cult. And we are not building the human rights cult. We're building the human rights movement, which is comprised of everybody who is your own prophet, my ally. I mean, for me, One of my so-called problematic, and I don't even like using that word around them, my potential allies would be like the Girl Scouts, for example. I don't think anybody in the Girl Scouts is going to lead a troop to defend an abortion clinic, though I wish they would. And they may not use words like neoliberal capitalism. I know I didn't get those words when I was in the Girl Scouts. But at the same time, they believe in women and girls' empowerment. So that makes them my ally, not my problem. And it's not my job to go to a Girl Scout troop and tell them they're doing everything wrong because they don't use all of this woke language that I use when I'm talking to people who already know this language. Instead, I need to change my register, but not my values, and talk to them in a register that they can hear. And outside of them, There are a lot of people in the middle, what I call the muddled middle, like my parents, who could go to the left or the right, depending on who has the most influence over them based on who they most trust. And when I deal with somebody like that, I abandon all of my left-wing language, and I talk about values, the values of being able to raise and provide for your family or what a safe community looks like or what the right to food or housing or health care looks like. And I find that I can have a lot of influence with people when I speak to their actual needs, leaving all that ideological posturing aside, and show them that fighting for human rights means that you not only feed people when they're hungry, but as a human rights activist, you ask why they're hungry in the first place. And you just don't take it as that's because they're not doing the right thing. It's not a moral judgment against poor people that they're poor, you know, that kind of thing. And so I tend not to use the phrase problematic ally. Everybody's a problematic ally to you. I mean, because hopefully nobody's walking around cloning you. So if we're going to move forward together in a way 
that we find solidarity. I know that people will say, well, how do we overcome these certain things a person did or certain things that a person said? So what is your alternative vision for call out culture? How do we hold people accountable, but also, you know, not get caught up when we actually don't quite frankly have time to get caught up in the things we do? Well, the basic premise of call-out culture is the expectation that people have to be perfect, that they're not in the process of growing and learning new things. You know, when you're calling people out, it's the expectation that they've already grown, not that they've got growing to do. But you've got growing to do. Everybody has growing to do. And so the first thing I tried to teach people in the calling-in culture, which is a phrase that Long Tran an 18-year-old invented in 2013, is the concept of self-forgiveness. Because if you can forgive yourself for the mistakes that you've made and understand the growth you still need to do, then that predisposes you to forgive others for the mistakes that they've made and the growth that they still need to do. I mean, all of us are very lucky that the internet wasn't available to catch all of our worst moments on tape. No kidding. You know, <laughs> to commemorate our most stupid moments. Otherwise, we could all be called out. And so the whole call-out culture, for the most part, is used as a way to virtue signal that you're woke and the person you're calling out is not. And it happens on the left and the right. So I'm not saying it's particularly a problem among progressives because progressives call out liberals, liberals call out progressives. I find liberals are amazingly angry at progressives right now, which is very poor threat assessment because they really need to be angry at the regressives mm-hmm. and not the progressives. Yeah. But And they spend a lot of time calling out progressives when they really need to stay focused on why they can't get any legislation passed because of the regressives within their own ranks kind of thing. But again, that's a matter of doing good threat assessment, having careful strategy, having a calling in strategy, because you're more likely to persuade people to listen to you and agree with you if you don't call them out because you insist that they believe in everything that you believe in kind of thing. I mean, that's the way you draw people into movements. The radical right organizes people around their soft racism, and then pulls them into their hardcore racism over time. And next thing you know, they're besieging the U.S. Capitol trying to overthrow the government. So we can't replicate that strategy. We really need to understand that more people actually agree with us who don't want to use violence, who are basically nonviolent. They just want to raise their children in safe and healthy environments in peaceful ways that they can go to work and provide for themselves and their families. And so we have to be careful not to alienate the people that we can get to agree to be with us just because we're trying to make them become us. That's not the way to go. And so I teach calling in lessons with Long Tran and others in my staff, Desiree Hammonds, and others because we're trying to build a human rights-based movement that represents a lot of different issues and a lot of different sectors who've learned to become stronger together through calling in practices. Because I think calling in will be as important to the human rights movement in the 21st century as nonviolence as a strategy was to the civil rights movement in the 20th century. It's not about what issue you work on. It's about how you do the work in a way that doesn't violate the very human rights framework that you're trying to use. I mean, that's it it reminds me of something you've talked about, how a movement, it's not built on solid ground when it's built on fear of saying the wrong thing, of trying to adapt to the right language. People aren't transforming internally. They're just sort of parroting and 
That solidarity, I don't think, can be built on such a false pretense almost, whereas you've also talked about, which I love, is is that our movements have kind of lost a little bit of joy and that we're having a hard time moving forward in a way that attracts people into something that feels joyful and feels in solidarity in a way where we're experiencing real connection. Well, Tony K. Bambara wrote in 1970, I believe a lot, I think she was 1970 because her first book that I read was The Black Woman. She used to say, you have to make the revolution irresistible. Mm. If you're not having fun fighting fascism, you're doing something wrong because you're fighting on the side of truth and justice. You're fighting for the right causes. And so if you don't bring joy and your full self to the movement and you don't find excitement and fulfillment in working for justice, you're doing something wrong. Nobody really is attracted to a Debbie Downer who always criticizes what is going on, who always tells people what they should be doing better, who doesn't find any satisfaction in what people bring to the movement doing their best work. We don't need Debbie Downers. We need Debbie Downers to find a therapist instead of a keyboard. We really need people who are ready to find their best selves, find their happiness in the process of serving others. That's what servant leadership is all about. And there's so much joy in that. And I find that when you serve your people, your every dream and wish will come true. I have found that over 50 years. So some other aphorisms I use is like, you know, you're supposed to party as hard as you work. You should have a toggle switch to turn your consciousness on and off because sometimes you just want to watch a movie without offering a critical feminist analysis of it. <laughs> you know, I like Twilight. I'm not really into whether or not Bella's character was sufficiently feminist or not. I mean, really? And I think those are the people who alienate more people than they draw in. And we really include them in the movement, but we hope to help them become less unhappy doing the work. How does that look in the classes you've been teaching? How does joy and and community happen with your, you know, with your students, with the next generation? Well, once COVID happened, I decided to take my in-class lessons from Smith College online. And so you can always sign up for my classes at my website, LorettaJRoss.com. And since then, this March of 2020, I've developed a team of wonderful people, 50 facilitators and leaders and trainers who are going around teaching people the techniques of calling people in instead of calling them out. And we teach about white supremacy and reproductive justice and neoliberal capitalism and all of those things in terms of the topics. But we also teach process. How do you build social justice organizations that don't implode from within because of the call-out culture? How do you affirm people's need? Because the other thing people don't recognize is that traumatized people are the ones who are drawn into human rights work because of what they've been through. But we also teach people what you've been through is not a resume. It's just what you've been through. You still got to learn a lot of stuff and most importantly, how not to inflict your trauma and do harm to other people that you need to work with. So if we're moving forward where we are now in what feels very overwhelming and somewhat inaccessible, I would say, to people who have never been involved in really any kind of activism or especially reproductive justice activism, what do you say to those of us who want to figure out how to invite people into the conversation and into the work? What is your best advice for us? Spend your judgment about their lived experiences the way you want them to spend judgment about yours, because everybody's been through something different that brings them to this moment. And so the best thing you can offer them is a conversation instead of a fight. Why don't you tell me more? about why you think what you're thinking. You can have a fight or you can have a conversation and you get to decide which one works better 
to fit your strategic goals. Because if your goal is to have a fight, there's a lot of ways to do that. But if your goal is to build the human rights movement, you have to change how you weaponize your trauma and your language in the movement. Well, Loretta, thank you so much. Your work has been like really um, heartening to me lately. It's felt really uplifting to read. So I just wanted to really say thank you for, I mean, decades of the kind of work that that is just the kind of solidarity, the kind of holistic work that we just absolutely uh, honor here. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on your show. If you'd like to take a very affordable course with Loretta Ross, get one of her books, or find out more about her work, head to her website, LorettaJRoss.com. And if you'd like to donate to Sister Song, head to Sistersong.net, which we very much encourage you to do. This episode has sound by Clear Camo Studios and was produced and edited by Miranda Zickler and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.